right. Guys, let's get into it. Uh, let's take our Bibles and turn in them to the book of Isaiah as we journey on through chapter 10. Today, uh, we're going to look at the entire chapter in a message that I've entitled, The Destruction and the Deliverance of the Lord. And so with that, let's take our hearts to Him. Father God, we just thank You so much for Your love and Your mercy. We thank You, God. Uh, just that you are patient with us and you have a heart to minister to us and work change in us. And so as to that end, we pray, make us more like Jesus. Give us ears to hear you and we'll give you praise in his name. And everybody say... Amen. Amen. This morning as we enter into chapter 10, we're jumping back into the throes of judgment. God has been warning the southern kingdom of Judah through the destruction determined upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Let's not forget that at this point in history, the, the overall arching kingdom of Israel has been divided into two, two sections. There's the northern kingdom, which is called Israel you know, proper, or sometimes it's referred to as Ephraim, because Ephraim was the largest, most influential tribe in the northern kingdom, but uh, Israel to the north, or Ephraim, Samaria was the capital. We have Judah in the south, of which Jerusalem was its capital. And I would remind you that uh, beginning in chapter 9, as God was sharing the determined uh, destruction upon them, each phase of judgment was concluded with the words, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And God said, in essence, that he would punish those who refuse to recognize his hand of correction, who refuse to turn at his direction, that he would hold both the prophets and the politicians accountable who prophesied or proclaimed lies which would lead to the destruction of the people. And he said that their wickedness was as fuel for the fire and that people would be devoured. Now again at the end of verse 21 of chapter 9, if I could turn your attention to it, we read, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, chapter 10, he says, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your glory. Without me they shall bow down among the prisoners and they shall fall among the slain. Notice, and for all of this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Well, if I could have your attention, ladies and gentlemen, I want to trust that you've been just as blessed by our studies through Isaiah as have I. I mean, God's Word proves over and over again that though times may change, though cultures may vary, that the human heart remains the same. The word of warning goes out to those who legislate law in the land. Now, allow me again to bring back to your remembrance that back in chapter 9, Isaiah had prophesied the kind of government that the Messiah would establish when he... Uh, uh, is ruling and the kind of government that he would uphold when he is ruling and reigning upon the earth. He said that Christ would, well the words are, order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, notice even forever. Ladies and gentlemen, the millennial reign of Christ is certainly a, a unique and, and special time of the rule and reign of Jesus, but don't think that after a thousand years he's just going to abdicate the throne and say, well you know I guess my time here is through and he's no longer going to rule and reign. No, he's going to rule and reign forever. And how is this going to happen? Well, I want you to notice it's not through the ingenuity or the creativity of man, you know, buying the world of Coke and peace and harmony and all of that. Uh, how many of you remember that commercial? Okay, so thank you. I've got some that are with me. But uh, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this unrelenting peace under the rule and reign of the Prince of Peace. But what we see here is deep contrast with what's coming prophetically in the millennial kingdom, you see, versus what's going on in our passage presently. People 
politicians, leaders who decree or declare unrighteous legislation, who put ungodly precepts in place and force them upon the people for personal gain, to enrich themselves, to obtain power or influence. Now, they take advantage of those who have no means to defend themselves. You know, they're stuck with the public defender. You know, they don't have the money for the real good lawyer. They get the public or whatever the case may be. And so they rob the poor and the needy. The widows are their prey and they rob the fatherless. Guys, we need to understand that God anticipates, God expects that man's justice and those who hand down decisions will reflect his justice and the decisions that he would hand down. But the leaders of Israel were praying on the weak. They were perverting justice. And so God says, destruction is determined upon you. Now, this is where we can all be like, yeah, God, get them, you know. We are kind of, and there's, it's true, guys. The rightness of what's being said here with those who legislate wickedness and oppress the, the poor, you know, I mean, this kind of, it, it kind of resonates in us. But though the interpretation belongs to judges, to legislators, to people who make decisions over others, guys, there is application for us all. You understand that, yes? I want you to focus in on verse 3, perhaps underline that first phrase. He says, what will you do in the day of punishment? He says, to whom will you flee for help? I, I like the way the King James actually reads on this one. It says, what will you do in the day of visitation? Uh, the idea is this, your wicked ways may be serving your gain presently, but what are you going to do, to whom are you going to turn ultimately on the day that God visits you, on the day that you stand in judgment? Who's going to help you when you stand helpless before the judge? You understand what I'm saying? And guys, it's something that I find myself circling back to from time to time, and that is this. Take heed, guys, listen, be careful to guard and maintain the eternal perspective. Listen, the Bible is clear that a day of reckoning, a day of judgment will find us all. The Bible declares it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the what? The judgment. And I want you to notice, ladies and gentlemen, there's no round two. Uh, there's no reincarnation. There's no do-overs. We don't get to give it another go. We're appointed to die once, and after this, the judgment. And let me just tell you that God is a great accountant. I know some good accountants, <laughs> but God is a great accountant, and there is nothing that he loses sight of, and your bill and mine, family, will be reconciled. You understand? Now, it can happen one of two ways. Either you can pay for it, or someone else can. Now, this is where the gospel comes in, praise God. Jesus came to pay a debt that he didn't owe because we owed the debt we couldn't pay. And Christ didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. Listen, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be, say it out loud. Amen. Amen. Jesus paid our sin debt through the shedding of his blood. He was delivered up for our transgression. He was raised up for our justification. The Bible is clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It, guys, it's not about what you need to do. It's about what he's already done for you. And simply receiving that, that grace by faith. But back to our text Reading here that people will enter into all kinds of scams and horrific 
legislation in order to advance their agenda to lay hold of power and wealth and popularity and influence, things that will prop them up for the time being, bring comfort and pleasure into their lives. They're not concerned with who it hurts or how it impacts anyone else. They're looking out for number one, but the question they neglect to consider is this, and I want you to think about it, what will you do in the end? Okay? To whom will you turn on the day of visitation? And listen, this is something that pastors and preachers will do as well in a, in a spiritual context. They'll scratch people's itching ears. How many of you have a dog? Come on now, show of hands. Okay, we got some. So here, here comes little Fluffy or Muffy or whatever your dog's name, and you're all like, oh, good boy, you right here, right? Oh, yeah, you're scratching that ear, making them feel all good and, and, and fuzzy, though they may be fuzzy. Some aren't so fuzzy. I had a dog that wasn't so fuzzy. Supposed to be fuzzy, wasn't fuzzy. I always get the dogs that are like, oh, he's a, he's a rescue dog, but I paid money for it, you know. <laughs> be that as it may. Fa remember that? Where's Missy? Fancy. That was her name. Fancy. <laughs> she was the most ironic pet I ever owned in that regard. <laughs> but people will heap up. They'll scratch those itching ears. Tell them, I'm okay. You're okay. You know, God understands your situation. Your situation is different. And they'll heap up for themselves teachers who will tell them everything's going to be okay. Someone was talking to me last week about a conversation that they were having with another individual about how, you know, our society has gone about normalizing sin. Yes? And, and it's true. People are offended by about everything but sin. And our culture has been desensitized and subjected to a mindset of relativism. Well, that may not be okay for you, but it's okay for them. So, you know, that's fine. You know, speak your truth. Man, that, that, that phrase gets on my nerves. But, you know, if the majority deems it as acceptable, then it's no longer wrong. And guys, I'm just going to be honest. It leaves my proverbial mouth gaping wide open. You know, I mean, even believers beginning to bend to the mindset of, well, if everyone else says it's fine, if everyone else thinks it's fine, then I guess we can consider it fine. Listen, sin is not fine. Okay? Listen, heaven and earth will pass away. People and their perspectives will come and go, but the Word of God abides forever. Do you understand that? In other words, God will not bend the standard of His and so, uh, so uh, called uh, outdated or antiquated or no longer relevant word to justify sin in our lives. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, the prophets prophesy falsely, the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. Don't miss this, but what will you do in the end? When you stand before God in the day of visitation, of punishment, of reckoning, settling accounts. People, I'm just telling you, let's not play games with God. Let's not test the resolve of His righteousness. Do you understand what I'm saying? In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses there warning the nation of Israel, Ladies and gentlemen, it may as well have been written to our nation right here, right now, today. And listen to this. They are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise and that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Think about that. Again, the mindset of, well, if everyone approves... Well, uh, the government made it legal. It must be okay. That mindset will destroy your life. Legal doesn't mean scriptural. And it sure doesn't mean God is okay with every decree or majority decision of man. But you know what is scriptural? This deceiving and being deceived wave that is washing over the masses, even over uh, many believers. And it is indicative of the last days in which we live. But again, I implore you, don't test 
the righteous resolve, the righteous judgment of God. Awake, O sleeper. That's what the Bible says. Maybe that's a word for someone here right now. I don't know. Like literally, physically, you're asleep or something. I don't know. But awake, O sleeper, and Christ will give you life. You know. Write it down so you can read it later. We won't go there, but it's in 2 Peter chapter 2. Just write that down out there. At the, etch it in your margin or whatever. And, and that's some homework for later. But in verse 4, he says, Without me they shall bow down among the prisoners and fall among the slain. In other words, listen, we have a choice, you and me. We can either bow before the Lord in adoration, or they, we would bow before the enemy, whatever the case may be. Suffering and humiliation is the application. It's before the Lord uh, in adoration or suffering and humiliation. And for all of this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Why? Because he still hasn't found repentance in the hearts of the people. I don't know what it is. But there's something in the heart of a rebellious and sinful people that causes them to stand up against the chastening hand of God. And rather than repent, they resolve to rebel we see it over and over again throughout Scripture. You remember the Pharaoh acted in a similar fashion when God was trying to chasten him and, and, and get him to release his people, and he kept, he kept resolving this rebellion. Of course, we see it throughout Israel's history. Even in the, at the end of humanity, in the book of Revelation, God is there pouring out his wrath, and we find people refusing to repent. Wise is the one who will turn from their sin. Humble themselves in the sight of the Lord that they might be saved, spared his judgment, healed, and made whole. Amen. Now, beginning in verse 5, God addresses the nation now of Assyria. We're entering a little bit of a new section uh, that indicates, you'll see when we get to verses 10 and 11, that by the time we're reading through that section of Scripture, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been destroyed, the destruction determined upon them by Assyria. Uh, now, that being the case, that puts us historically, for those of you that are into these kind of things, right around 720 B.C., okay, give or take. It could be a little earlier, a little later, but we're right around 720 B.C., and I just uh, spilled water out of my mouth. And now, verse 5, he says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it's in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. Now, guys, this is a bit of a mind-blowing concept for some people, that God would use pagan unbelieving, ungodly people or nations to bring about his plans, his purposes, his punishment even to and including upon his own people who are serving him hypocritically rather than sincerely and in truth. Now Habakkuk, is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? I've heard it both ways, right? But Habakkuk struggled with this, this idea that God would use an unbelieving, ungodly people to bring judgment upon his own people. I mean, God told him, look, among the nations, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Now, you could go there and read it for yourself, but essentially what happens is God says, look, I could tell you, you wouldn't believe it. And Habakkuk says, I'll believe it. And God says, look, I'm telling you, you won't believe it. And Habakkuk says, look, I'm telling you, I'll believe it. And so God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And Habakkuk says, I can't believe it. <laughs> God says, I told you, you wouldn't believe it. You know, he just couldn't get past the fact that God would bring the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, an ungodly nation to, to chasten Judah. 
But here God says that he's having the Assyrians run a few errands for him. Uh, and, and this is a kind of a thing that's, that's really not altogether uncommon. You know, when Saul was, was trying to kill David, Saul was acting wickedly, but God was using it to prepare David. Um, you remember when Joseph sold, uh, Joseph's brothers were, sold him off into slavery. What they were doing, they meant it for evil, but God used it for good. Of course, I suppose the ultimate example would be the fact that Judas uh, sinned against Jesus, betrayed the Lord, but God used it to bring about our redemption. The 76th Psalm says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. In other words, God can take what man means for evil and turn it for good. Now, do we always have the luxury of being able to deduct or to discern the good that God's going to bring out of an evil against his own? You know, no. But Scripture shows us again and again that he can and ultimately, eternally, that's exactly what he does. Now, verses 5 and 6, we have a serious mission, okay? To come against an ungodly nation, against the people of God's wrath, a hypocritical people. In verses 7 through 11, which we'll continue in a moment, we'll find a serious motive. So 5 and 6, the mission. Verses 7 through 11, the motive. And I want you to notice that God refers to Assyria as the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. The rod and the staff. These were the tools, right, that the shepherd would use to correct and direct the sheep. And God was saying that Assyria was like an instrument in his hand to be used in bringing correction both to Syria, not Assyria, Assyria would be used to bring correction to Syria, Israel, and Judah. But what we discover is that even though God was using them, it did not excuse them. Do you understand what I'm saying? He says, woe to Assyria. In other words, God can use the wicked acts of others, but he's not himself responsible for their wickedness. They are making their own decisions. He is just using it for his end. So, could God be trying to get your attention through an ungodly employer or supervisor at work? Absolutely. You know, David took comfort in God's rod and his staff. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, surely you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? Uh, and so long as, you know, the instrument of chastening is in God's hands, we should take comfort in that. Why? Because God is for us not against us, has thoughts of peace and not of evil to give us a future and a hope. And we note, verse 7, that Assyria, or perhaps your ungodly boss, not that every person's boss is ungodly, but you understand, didn't even realize or recognize that God was using them, uh, allowing them power to plunder and granting them their success over others. It's because God gave them permission that they were able to seize the spoil, to take the prey, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now, they think they're out there just conquering the world. The truth is God is using them as an instrument of judgment against wickedness and hypocrisy. But as to where they were meant to be an instrument of discipline, what we discover is they became instrument, an instrument of destruction. Okay, They exploited the purposes for which God allowed them to be raised up. Look with me. Notice verse 8. He's, for he says, this is the king of Assyria... Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish and Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria. In other words, you know, greater nations than them. As I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also in Jerusalem to Jerusalem and her idols? Verse 12, therefore it shall come to pass 
pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my, my wisdom I am prudent. Also I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, and my hand has found uh, like a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathers eggs that are left, I've gathered all the earth, and there was no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth with even a peep. So in verses 8 through 11 and verse 13 and 14, we see the fruit of the king of Assyria's sin. In verse 12, those of you who are underliners, note takers, word circlers, margin etchers, <laughs> highlighters, that's all I got. God puts his finger on the root. So verses 8 through 11, 13 and 14 is the fruit. Verse 12, God puts his finger on the root of his sin. Did you see it there? It's an arrogant heart. The king thought he had come to chew gum and destroy nations. The only problem was that chewing gum didn't exist. <laughs> and so he was left to just destroy nations. You know, this was his mindset. He didn't see any indication or have the slightest inclination that God was allowing him to have his success. That he was being used essentially as an errand boy, handing out God's judgment upon ungodly, hypocritical nations. As far as he was concerned, he was all that, the bag of chips and a condensating glass of sweet tea to go along with it. You know what I mean? Or a Capri Sun, whatever your sack lunch has in it. The last thing he was thinking about was the glory of God or God's will. Only destruction was in his heart. And because he was accomplishing all that was in his heart, we read that it fed his arrogant pride. You know, placing his princes on the level of kings. Of course, he was the king of the kings. You see how that works? Now, in the ancient world, there was a common thought, common notion that a nation was only as strong as was their gods, right? That's why he says in verses 10 and 11 that as he's done to other kingdoms that were greater and mightier than, uh, you know, Samaria and Jerusalem and Israel and Judah and all of that, and their idols, uh, he, he's going to do to Jerusalem and her idols, you see. He thinks that the Lord God of Judah is no different than the idols of the other nations, their gods couldn't help them. The, the bigger, you know, with more soldier kind of nations, their gods couldn't help them. Their idols couldn't help them. And so Judah's God's not going to be able to help them either. And he's in for a rude awakening. But guys, it's a fairly common mistake that people make. You know, they're somewhat familiar with various religions, uh, with religious rituals, and they just kind of presume that you're just a religious individual, not too unlike other religious Persons or people. But guys, God isn't some plastic figure that you can kind of set on your dashboard. God's not some just benevolent deity that you can kind of come and visit on holidays or whenever it's convenient for you. No, listen. Uh, our God, He is the omniscient, omnipotent, right? Omnipresent, holy, righteous creator, the one true living God with whom we have to do. You understand? And there is no other. Isaiah 44, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? Listen, he says, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Quick question. If God is all-knowing, and He knows of no other God, what does that tell you? There's no other God, ladies and gentlemen. 
And we'll see it more in coming chapters. But suffice it to say for now that God hates pride and arrogance. Throughout verses 13 and 14, over and over again we read, My hand, I have done it, my wisdom, I am prudent, I have, I have, my hand, I have, and no one could contest or contend. No one opened his mouth, even a peep. He's envisioning like gathering eggs in a hen house. You know, it's just that simple. Just brush them out of the way. No one to contest. No one to contend. God says, I'm going to punish the fruit of your arrogant heart and the glory of your haughty looks. Proverbs 21 and verse 4, a haughty look. What is haughty? It's arrogance. It's, it's prideful. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. Psalm 101, the one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. God resists the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. The king of Assyria considered his wisdom irresistible, his might invincible, but God will bring him low. Now look at verse 15. He says, Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, which means the commander of, of uh, everything, okay, uh, will send leanness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day, and it will consume the glory of his forest and the fruitful and of his fruitful field, of both soul and body. And they will be as when a sick man wastes away. Then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them or count them. So he says. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? You know, can a rod wield itself against the one who lifts it up? Listen, here's the point. The thing about an instrument is that it can't do anyone any good unless it's in the hands of a skilled artisan. Okay? Imagine a, a life-saving surgery taking place. And the people gathering around the scalpel and giving it praise and adoration, or the scalpel standing up after it's all done saying, did you guys see that? I mean, what precision, what perfection I displayed. How ludicrous is that? The strength, skill, and sufficiency is in the hands of the surgeon, not the scalpel. If the surgeon doesn't pick up the scalpel and use it, it's not going to do so much as one single profitable thing. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, truly, it is a wonderful thing to be an instrument in the hands of God. I trust if you've allowed God to use your life, you have discovered that nothing compares to it. It's an honor that will ring truly throughout eternity. But let's not get it twisted. It's not the instrument who deserves the praise. It's the one who wields it. What can we do of any eternal value apart from the Lord? Jesus said that like this. He said, without me, you can do, I mean, some things. Is that what he said? It's not what he said. Apart from me, you can do, what's the word? nothing. And again, Jesus said, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, you've lived your life perfectly, you've submitted to God completely, he says, say, we are unprofitable servants. We've done only what was our duty to do. And can I say, often we do much less. It's not the instrument that warrants the accolade. God is the one who does the work. Now, we are honored, we are humbled, we are blessed if he chooses to use us to accomplish a certain task. 
We might say that Assyria was sitting fat and sassy. That's what he talks about here. But God would send leanness among them. His judgment would be like a consuming fire that would leave Assyria as but a shadow of its former self. He says, by the time I'm done with you, even a child would be able to number you. Now, look at verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Um, guys, uh, let's keep going. The, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, underline it, do not be afraid of the Assyrian he shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you as in the manner of Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me. For yet a very little while and the indignation will cease as will my anger in their destruction and the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb as his rod was on the sea so he will lift it up in the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. Now you may have picked up a phrase, I kind of tried to emphasize it as I was reading it, used a couple of different times in this particular passage, and it shall come to pass in that day. Now, it's a phrase that has definite eschatological overtones to it, or uh, prophetic, futuristic uh, overtones or nuances attached to it, which is to say that what's to happen with Assyria, what would happen to them historically, is a foreshadow of what will be fulfilled pertaining to the tribulation, the destruction of the Antichrist, the return of, of uh, Israel to the Lord in truth, prophetically. Or futuristically, okay? Now we love this phrase in verse 20. Those who have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Notice in truth. Guys, underline those, those words. In truth. I got a question for you. Where do you place your trust? In truth, now. In truth. We place on our currency, don't we? In God we trust. As though it's some kind of national creed or something. Let me ask you a question. Is that true? Guys, not even remotely, not even close. But those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in, what is it? In truth. Honestly. From the heart. He says that the remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. What incredible grace and long suffering on God's behalf. Guys, he would be, and we're not too far from finished, so stay with me. But he would be completely justified in saying, You want to trust in the Assyrians? You're on your own. Have it your way. I hope that works out for you. You're on your own. But even in the midst of their judgment, he offers them hope and brings them comfort. Listen, God understands. How many of you realize, how many of you understand that God understands that sometimes it takes tough times to turn a people or a person back around to the Lord? Um, it wasn't until the prodigal, you can write it down, read it later, Luke chapter 15. It wasn't until he was in the pig pen completely destitute, completely undone, that he kind of came to his senses and said, man, I need to return to my father. And by the way, we should note here in passing, verse 22, when God determines destruction, it's always done in righteousness. It overflows with righteousness. 
Therefore, he says in verse 24, do not be afraid, notice, of the Assyrian. Just FYI, you prophecy students, the Assyrian is another title of the Antichrist, okay? The Assyrian. And God is telling them, remember the present foreshadow, the prophetic fulfillment, that though the Assyrian will wage war with them, seek to destroy them, they're not to be afraid of him. Because God will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You guys remember that whole Gideon episode? That's the slaughter of Midian. He says, like when God parted the sea and his people were delivered, but the entire nation, the entire Egyptian army, I should say, was swallowed up and destroyed. God is saying that he will completely, utterly annihilate him. Why? Because of the anointing oil, man. The person, the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit will be with them. What's the take home here out of this? That if God be for you, who can be against you? Now, if you want to read about it, again, you can write it down so that you can read it later. Guys, I'm giving you a lot, but if, you're in, if you want to pursue it, 2 Kings chapter 19. That's when God brings the fulfillment of the, in one night, ladies and gentlemen, the angel of the Lord swept through the camp of the Assyrians and killed 185,000 soldiers. One night. I did the math, but I didn't know the exact time he went and you know, when he was done, so I'm not going to bring it up. But it's, a sta it's staggering how many people every second are being killed. In that, if you wanted to start, you know, looking at it, just nonstop for, say, eight hours. Of course, you know, he could just say the word, they'd all drop dead immediately. But in one night, and the few remaining packed up and headed home, and guess what? The king was there killed by his own son. What does the Bible say? Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. What a glorious word for us today. And in 28, uh, who's closing? Is it Karen? Just whenever you're ready. In verse 28, we read, He has come to a, or Aieth, however you say Ai, you remember the Ai, the Joshua, so same place. He has this is the uh, route of the Assyrian, okay? He has passed Migron at Migmash. He has attended to his equipment. They have gone along the ridge. They have taken up lodging at Geba or Geba, however you say. Ramah or Rama, guys, I don't know how to say all these things, is afraid. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard as far as Laash. O you, O poor Anathoth. Uh, Madmina has fled, or Madmina. The inhabitants of Gabim seek refuge, as yet he will remain at Nob that day. Here it is. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So Nob, just outside of Jerusalem, this is where he went. And again, you'll read this in Kings where he's mocking them, Sennacherib and all. He's like, hey, don't think, don't think that because he's saying your God will save you, that your God will save you. I'm here to tell you the other people thought that. They, they were just as convinced as you were. And Hezekiah said, don't answer him a word. Do not respond to this man. And he went in before the temple, before the Lord, and he laid out the threats that... The king of Assyria was making against the nation of Judah. And he said, God, what are we going to do? I, there's nothing I can do. And he just poured out his heart before the Lord. Just put the threats out in front of him. And Isaiah came to him and said, listen, not even so much as an arrow is going to cross that wall. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and destroyed 185,000 of the soldiers. But this would be the route from the north to the south of the Assyrian invasion. It would be right outside of Jerusalem. He would get right up. Remember we read a couple weeks ago, right up to the neck. But God was with him. Remember, Emmanuel, God is with us. I'm telling you, that's a word for someone. God is with you. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed. Feeling like something's about to overcome, overtake. Emmanuel, you don't, don't forget it. God is with you. Lay it out before him. Trust in him. You wait. 
you watch, you'll see what God will do. Don't lose heart. In verse 33, as we wind down and wrap up, behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Again, the idea here is that God will bring low the proud. The haughty will be humbled before the mighty one. And this sets us up wonderfully for next week, guys. I pray you're able to make it back where we see out of the stump, out of the shoot, out of the stem of Jesse, we're going to see a, a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. But better to humble yourself before God and receive his deliverance than to be humbled by God in the throes of his destruction. Amen? So let's turn our hearts to him. Let's bow our hearts. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would strengthen our resolve to be a people who love and want to know your word that we might lead lives that are pleasing to you and find favor in your sight. And I pray, O oh God, that we humble our hearts before you, that our lives might bring glory to you. God, fill us fresh with the power and the person of your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that if there be anyone here today who doesn't know you, that they might just call upon you, believe upon you even now. Listen, we, we read that, guys, as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, we read that the yoke was to be destroyed because of the anointing oil. What does that mean? It means it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that the yoke of bondage, the bondage of sin and death is broken in our lives. And if you need Christ to come into your life and forgive you of your sin and make you new, don't hesitate. Surrender today. Maybe you've been to church before. Maybe this is your first time ever to come to church. Maybe you, you've gone through the motions, but you've never really known Christ. You just kind of identified, well, I go to church. What we do is America. I was baptized when I was a kid, this and that. But my question is, has Jesus Christ changed your life? Have you been made new? That's what he does. He causes old things to pass away. He makes all things new. Remember, when it comes to our sin, either we pay for it or someone else does. And the only way someone, that only, the only someone else who can is Jesus Christ, and he has. But the only way that that's imputed to you or accredited to you is by God's grace through faith in him. It's not about what you do, how good you are, what you don't do. It's about what he's done. So if that's resonating in you and you need Christ to come into your life, I don't know, maybe everyone here knows the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. But if you need Christ to come into your life, to set you free, to break that bondage, to give you hope and healing, I want to pray for you. And if you would humble yourself before the Lord so as to just show me who you are, just raise your hand. And if I see your hand, I'll say so. You can put it right back down. But I just want to give you a second here to say, you know what? I need Christ to come into my life. I don't want to play games. I don't want to play church. I want to know Jesus, man. Is there anybody that needs that today? Don't miss your moment if that's you. God bless you. God bless you. You can put your hand down if you want to. Anyone else? Guys, that's why we're here. Okay, well, Lord, we just want to say thank you. And Lord, I also trust that for those of us who know you, that you're, uh, 
You're stirring, God. You're doing a work. You're maybe putting us in check or causing us to think through previously kind of presumed upon positions. And I just pray, God, that as David said, that you would search us, that you would know us, that you would try us, that you would know our fears, our uncertainties, our anxieties, and that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Now listen, if you're saying, I need Jesus to come into my life, I want you to know that the Bible is clear that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But there's a beautiful promise that Scripture gives us that if we'll confess our sin, He is faithful, He is just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Not some of it, not everything but the really one bad thing you did. No, all unrighteousness. And so I want to encourage you just to cry out to Him from your own heart. Something to this extent, just Lord Jesus... I know that I'm a sinner. I agree with you. I confess, you see, my sin. And I'm asking you, Lord, to forgive me of my sin. To cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And Lord, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come into my heart, oh God, into my life and make me new. And God, I'm asking that you would help me to lead my life for you from this day forward. That others would see you in me. And thank you for putting my name in your book of life. Look, I want to encourage you that if you prayed something like that, or look, God understands the cry of your heart, that God has come to you, Christ has indwelt you by the power of his spirit. He has washed over you. He has cleansed you. He's forgiven you. I'm encouraging you, don't resist it. Don't say, man, I don't know if I can believe it. Just receive it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen? Amen. Why don't we rise to our feet?